You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. <coughs> so a self-professed parenting expert should immediately raise our suspicions. <laughs> Anybody would claim to be an expert in something like parenting. I want to know their credentials. Right? The open microphone of the internet tends to broadcast just this cacophony of noise, advice, advocating their own unique spin on how to approach the task of parenting. And as any new parent can tell you, everyone touts their expertise. Everyone readily shares their opinions with you for how to parent their counsel. Whether you want to hear it or not, they'll share it with you. And sometimes in response to the frequently unhelpful tips that we get from those who bring them to our lives, uh, we, we tend to kind of tune them out. And so new parents can read a few blogs. They can trust their minimal experience and research. And even though the extent of their parenting is only a couple dozen dirty diapers, they consider themselves experts in the task. Right? Parenting tends to produce an arrogance in us, doesn't it? I think we've got it figured out. Teachability and humility are two characteristics that often don't describe the parenting world today. As the adage goes, I think when it comes to parenting, the proof is in the pudding. In other words, the sort of advice I want to hear from, the sort of instruction I want to hear comes from older Christian parents who have successfully raised thriving, mature, self-sufficient, God-fearing adults. I want to hear from those folks. But here I am, right, an expositor of God's word, coming to Paul's instructions for children and parents as a man who is still in the process of making the pudding. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, I pray that even though I am not a self-professed parenting expert, I do have God's word, right? And I pray that I might be of some help today as we try to apply God's word to parenting. I've, I do find some comfort as I attempt to teach on Christian parenting that Paul, an apostle, has no hesitations when it comes to teaching about marriage and children, even though he wasn't married and even though he had no children, so with humility, let's go to God's word. Let's listen to God's word and let's strive to follow it in our homes. And I pray it might be of help as I apply this text to us. So today, uh, but, but we're gonna first direct our attention to the charge directed towards children specifically to obey their parents. And then secondly, we'll turn our attention to the parents' responsibility in the upbringing of their children. So let's first talk to children. Obey your parents in the Lord. So my parents worked 
and served to bring me up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I grew up as a preacher's kid, if you didn't know that. But the verse, there's one verse they impressed upon me more than any other Bible verse I can remember. And it's Ephesians chapter six, verse one, which I can still hear in my mother's voice. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. If you've had the blessing of Christian parents, I'm sure you've heard this verse more than a few times as I had. Often wielded by well-meaning parents, who seem to use this text as a sort of manipulative scriptural rod to compel obedience from their children. But, you know, using Ephesians 6.1 as a proof text to control our children, it doesn't quite get to the heart of what Paul intends for the parental task to instruct our children of the Lord. So before we dive into just what is a child's duty to obey his or her parents, Let's first think a little bit about just how children were thought of in the first century. So the authority of a Roman father in that first century context was absolute. It was absolute. He was the king functionally in the household. He was outside the bounds of the law when it came to the administration of his family. A father had a right to sell his children into slavery. He had a right to force his children to work as slave laborers in the field. He could put his child to death should he see it fit. Not only was the father's authority absolute, but children never came of age in society as long as their fathers lived. Even adult children were required to be subject to their father's absolute power over their lives, even if you're 40 years old. So children were often seen, particularly the littlest children, they were looked down upon. Children were seen as a nuisance, an unfortunate consequence of sexual freedom and and a bit of an obstacle to have a quick and easy divorce. Children were despised. Before the technology to abort babies from the womb, the pagans practiced infanticide. Even the life of a newborn baby rested in the authority of the father. When a baby was born, the baby would be brought from the mother to the father. And if the baby was picked up by the father and the father took the baby in his arms, then the baby lived. If the father looks upon the child and turns his back to the child, the baby was tossed out, either to die from exposure to the elements or to be picked up by traffickers who would raise the child to be sold as a slave or to stock the brothels. One Roman father wrote to his expecting wife, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. What made early Christians so countercultural was their love for children in a world that hated children. In contrast to the pagans, the Old Testament continually affirms the value and the blessing of children. The scriptures describe in Psalm 139 how the Lord knits us together in our mother's womb and that every human being is made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Solomon rejoices in the blessing of children in Psalm 127, describing children as a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. But it's not just in the Old Testament. Jesus, more than anyone, models the value of children. Remember Jesus' words? Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, 
for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus would put a child on his lap in front of all of his disciples, and he would tell them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned into the depth of the sea. As we used to sing, maybe we still sing, Jesus loves the little children. So because Jesus loves children, and because Jesus urges his church to do the same, the church from its beginning, showed love and compassion to the orphans. James instructs the church, James 1.27, true religion, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. What might you expect? Here's what James says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Christians filled with the compassion of Christ in that first century context would gather abandoned children out of the garbage piles and bring them into their homes. Is it any wonder then that orphanages are a Christian invention? Is it any surprise then that Christians even today are pro-life? Christians have always, always from the beginning, cherished children and have embraced their responsibility to be a defender for the defenseless. We would do well to remember that any culture that hates children will follow in the Roman legacy of decadence, decay, decline, and destruction. But where there are needy children, and here's the good news, where there are needy children, even in our society today, there will God's people be to defend the vulnerable, to feed the hungry, to adopt the orphan. As God's people who have experienced the love of our heavenly father, we know what it means to, to be fatherless, we know what it means to not have a family. We know what it means to be exposed and in danger. We know what it means to have been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. And so, of course, Christians have the inclination, indeed, the spirit-wrought impulse to care for the orphans, to care for children. We love children in various ways as God's people. We do so by protecting them from the evil of abortion. We do so by mentoring those without fathers. We do so by fostering children in our homes. We do so by supporting children's, uh, Christian children's homes. And of course, we even adopt children into our families. So while Paul focuses here in our text on parents' rights and responsibilities in raising their children, we have to remember God's people have always loved children and that the discipleship of children, particularly as we seek to bring them up, this is a church-wide concern, not just a parent concern. Paul intended his letter to be read publicly, publicly to the gathered church. And so by addressing children directly in his letter, Paul assumes that when the Ephesian church is gathered, there are children present in the gathering. There are children there. And while we thought it a help at redemption to provide care and Bible study for the littlest children during worship, we have also as redemption been intentional to have most of our children in the service to watch, to participate, to engage in the church's worship. And so in a Sunday church gathering of Ephesus, I, I imagine the squirming six-year-old, how his ears might have perked up when this letter from the Apostle Paul was being read. When all of a sudden he hears the words, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. 
You see, even if you don't have children, the spiritual concern for the church's children should be a burden for all of us because the church is a family. It's a family. And so the children of other members are, in a sense, your children too. So parents have the special obligation for the discipleship of their children. That didn't dismiss the fact that every church member has a role to play in assisting parents in the bringing up of the next generation. And there are countless ways that you as a church member can do this. You can volunteer to serve with Redemption Kids. You can help with our student ministry. You can talk to the children and encourage them on a Sunday morning and let them know that you're glad that they're here. You can help a struggling mom get out of her car and into the building. You can help a dad with a squirming child in prayer meeting. You can smile and you can not seem irritated when the children are a little rambunctious and at play, right? So we can find countless ways to serve and to help others in the care of children. But one of the most practical ways that we as members can care for the children of our congregation is that we can regularly pray for their souls, pray for their souls, particularly pray, as we just did in our pastoral prayer, pray for their conversion, pray for their conversion, pray that they would come to know the Lord. So we have these little membership directories. I keep mine in my Bible. And you'll notice that in the back of these directories, there is a list of the children of our members. Now, why do we put that in there? Well, it's not just a birthday list, although recognizing a child's birthday can be an encouraging thing for a child. But why do we put it in there? We put it in there because it's a prayer list. It's an evangelism list. It's a list of children that we pray through the witness of the church and through the ministry of the parents and their discipleship that these children will one day become members of this congregation as they repent and believe in Christ. So let me urge you, as you pray for the members, don't forget to pray for the children in the back because we want to pray that they would come to know the Lord and pray that they would be converted, pray that they would be born again of the Spirit of God. So let's look at the text more carefully. Look at verse 1. Paul charges children in verse 1, obey. Obey their parents in the Lord. The word used here for obey is, in the original, original language, it's a stronger word than the word submit that Paul uses when he's speaking to wives relating to their husbands. While the wives calling to submission is voluntary, children are expected to obey with absolute obedience. A child's obedience to his or her parents must be done in the Lord. So this important caveat, like a wife, a child's ultimate obedience is to the Lord. A child must never obey his parents into sin, but a child's obedience to his parents is, is in part how the child honors the Lord. So in a parallel passage from Colossians 3, verse 20, Paul tells children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So Paul gives two reasons for why children should obey their parents. The first comes from natural law. The second from revealed law. So Paul says that obedience to parents is right, is right. In medieval theology, the obedience of children was called a natural justice. It was a principle revealed in creation itself. The moral principle of a child's obedience is revealed plainly in the world that God has made. And again, the pagans, the Stoics, even Confucius, all recognize the moral principle that children ought to obey their parents and that obedience to parents is foundational for a civil society to function. 
In Romans 1.30, Paul describes the sort of moral degeneracy of humanity who rejects God's natural law, and he includes in that list disobedience to parents. Disobedience to parents. Children are to obey the, their parents for this is right. It is a moral principle revealed in creation. But in addition to the natural law, there's a second reason. Not only does creation testify to it, but the scriptures say it. It's revealed by the law. So Paul references the Ten Commandments. Thus, Paul affirms the moral law of the Old Testament as continually binding upon the church. Paul quotes from Exodus 20, verse 12, and he combines it with Deuteronomy 5, 16. He sort of omits the focus on Israel because he's trying to make the commandment a little bit more general and proverbial in its application. And Paul highlights God's revealed law. And he does so, he interjects in verse two. Look at what the text says. He interjects with his commentary at the end of verse two. He says, honor your father and mother, Paul's interjection, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So as common sense might tell us, and experience might testify, those who honor their parents and submit to their authority typically are blessed and safe in life, aren't they? Every child who yields to their parents know when putting a fork in a socket or when running into the street experiences the blessings of obedience, don't they? Proverbs describes the blessing of children who obey their parents. Remember Proverbs? Hear my son and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Or Proverbs 30, verse 17, the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Parents, you can put that one in your tool belts, right? Put that with Ephesians 6.1. So if a child can't be motivated to the natural law or to the revealed law of scripture, the practical blessings that come from obedience to parents, that appeals to a child's self-interest. Children who obey their parents are blessed. Children who are taught by their parents to obey, taught to show respect, taught to give honor, are the sort of children who live blessed and fruitful lives. If a child will not obey his parents, a child won't obey his parents. Why would she obey the law of government? And if a child won't treat his parents with kindness, how will he learn to show kindness to others? And most importantly, if a child fails to submit to the authority of his parents, how can that child learn what it means to submit to the lordship of Christ? Parents must see it as their duty to expect obedience from their children. We should consistently require obedience from our children, and that can be a little exhausting. And though we don't want to use our authority to provoke our children, which we'll talk about in a bit, parents have the responsibility before God to train children for obedience. So for weary and exhausted parents who find themselves yet again needing to discipline an obstinate child, don't point any fingers, Paul reminds us, right, that such obedience from our children is right. Parents, it is right for you to expect obedience from your children. And if we love our children as God calls us to do, and if we will shepherd their hearts for God's glory, then training our children to obey isn't a matter of parental self-interest, but of sacrificial love for the good of our children. 
We require our children to obey us, not because we want to make our parenting easier, but because we know that God has designed blessings to come through obedience. A lot of ways, expecting your child to obey you consistently is a lot harder. (laughs) It's a lot more sacrificial. It's a lot more costly. Tolerating your child's stiff neck, though, tolerating that stiff neck and that bowed back, parent, that's not loving your child well. Why? Why would you coddle your child in their sin when you know that sin is the way of death? Loving parents confront their child's sin. Loving parents alert their child to the need they have for grace and for Christ. And a loving child call, a loving parent calls their children to repentance. As parents, we mediate God's authority and love to our children. And so by our parenting, we will either give our children an accurate picture of our Heavenly Father, or we will give our children a distorted picture of our Heavenly Father. This is one of the reasons why Christian parents should commit to knowing our Heavenly Father, knowing who He is, what He is like as we study His Word. And so parents, we must show our children regularly their great need for a Savior. We must help them to see their rebellious and disobedient hearts, and we must correct and instruct aiming for the heart so that our children can understand their need for the gospel and respond to the gospel with repentance and faith. And so we pray, we pray as parents that the Lord might use us in our exercise of parental authority, that God might be gracious to save our children, to expose their sin as we keep pointing them to Jesus. So children, let me address you specifically. This might be the closest we ever get to a children's sermon here at Redemption Church. So listen carefully, all right? Children, obeying God means obeying your parents, God has given you your dad and your mom to be an authority over your life. And God has given you your parents to help train you how to obey God when you grow up and you become an adult. God commands you to honor them, to respect them, to obey them. But guess what? Guess what? I know you because I know me. You don't like to obey, do you? (laughs) We don't like to obey. In fact, perhaps maybe you regularly disobey your parents. Maybe even this morning you've disobeyed just getting ready for church by not putting on the clothes like you were supposed to or brushing your teeth as you've been told or getting in the car and buckling as you ought to have done as your parents instructed you. We can regularly disobey our parents, can't we? And the Bible calls this sin. It's sin because when we disobey our parents, we are disobeying God. And guess what? Even if you outwardly obey your parents and you do all the right things, but in your heart, you are grumbling about it, you're mad about it, you are still sinning against God. So God gives you your parents, children, to help you, to help you see that you are a sinner. You are a sinner who is in great need of a savior because every time you are punished for disobeying your parents, your parents are trying to love you well. They're trying to tell you, they're trying to warn you that sin is dangerous. And they're trying to warn you of the punishment of God's wrath that comes against every sinner. But guess what? And let me tell you a secret that your parents don't tell you frequently enough. Not only are you a sinner, but your parents are sinners just like you. And sometimes, sometimes your parents will sin against you. 
And they will not always use their authority in a way that honors God because everyone is a sinner, including your mom and dad, especially your mom and dad. But even though we are all sinners who disobey God, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who always obeyed his father. Jesus died on the cross, children. He died to take on the punishment we deserve. And if we put our faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven and given new hearts that want to obey God and can obey God. Children, the most important lesson that your parents will ever teach you is not how to use a fork, nor how to tie your shoes, nor how to drive a car. The most important lesson that you must learn under their authority is that you are a sinner in need of a great savior. You are a rebel who need God's forgiveness. So no matter how hard you try, children, you will not perfectly obey your parents. You will fall short. And so children, see, see your great need. Humble yourself before God. Look to Jesus to save you and to help you. Children, you must recognize that your parents are a gift from God. They are God's gift to you. So follow their commands. Listen to their teaching. Receive their correction. Listen to the gospel they tell you about. And thank God that he has given you your parents. Now, children don't always stay little children, do they? But they grow up, and they grow up into adulthood. So when we outgrow the requirement of obedience as we enter adulthood, we as adult children, no matter our age, still have the duty to honor our parents, don't we? Kent Hughes said that we may outgrow the demand to obey our parents, but we never outgrow the obligation to honor them. Even in their failings and failures, we should strive to honor and respect our parents as adults especially as they get older, especially as they grow frail with age. The failures and shortcomings of your parents tend to become increasingly more apparent as we get older and a little wiser, often sort of shattering the naive vision we had of our parents as kids who was practically Superman in our eyes. We begin to see their sins, their shortcomings with greater clarity as we grow. But adult children, be so very careful about growing cynical, despising, and disrespecting your aging parents. We have a biblical responsibility to honor them all the days of our life. And the honor we show our parents becomes increasingly important as they age and as they depend upon us for their care. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5 that anyone who does not take care of his own household, his own family, is worse than an unbeliever. So if you are in the prime of your adulthood, even with little children of your own, you should be planning and preparing to one day provide care for your aging parents. It is a good and godly thing to do. It's how we honor them. One thing that has greatly encouraged me about so many of our members here at Redemption Church is the tender and sacrificial ways that so many of our members have cared or are currently caring for aging parents. It's a testimony of the love of Christ in this body. Such loving sacrifice pleases the Lord. It honors the Lord. One of the ways we honor Christ is by honoring our aging parents. So now we've spoken a little bit directly to children. Let's now turn to parents. Parents are called in verse four to discipline and instruct of the Lord. Paul makes his appeal directly to fathers in verse four. 
Now, Paul, most likely, particularly the context of the first three verses, has in mind both fathers and mothers. He does single out fathers here in verse 4, who bore unique responsibility for the education and discipline of their children in Greco-Roman culture. Now, while the context shows that Paul has both parents in mind, he does emphasize this appeal to the fathers who are the, the head of their households and who will ultimately have to give an account to God for their children. So while both fathers and mothers are essential for a strong Christian household, the rise of so many children growing up without fathers is a tragic reality of our current world. Let me just give you some statistics. 80% of African-American children grow up without a father in the home. 60% of Hispanic children and 50% of white children are all raised without their biological fathers in the home. And what this means is quite soberingly is that fatherlessness is the norm for the average American child. The breakdown of the family, and indeed so many of the problems in our culture, I think stem back to a deviation and a failure of fathers to take their responsibility to care and to bring up their children. In homes without fathers, the mom often has a very cumbersome burden in caring for her children single-handedly. It's not the way God designed it. Fatherlessness is a plight to our culture, and many moms have had to bear the responsibility of parenthood alone. And this is not as God intends. But for you Christian women, you Christian moms who bear this task alone in the raising and discipleship of your children, the Lord will strengthen you. And one of the ways that you can help your children as you're struggling is by placing your children in the community of the church where godly men can provide an example and even help you in the discipleship of your children. As Christian men, I think today we have a unique challenge and opportunity in our current generation because we must not only strive to be godly fathers to our own children, but we must look for opportunities to be spiritual fathers to the fatherless among us. We have several men in our church who engage in redemption kids or who help out with the student ministry on Wednesday nights. But guess what? We need more. Christian men in the church serve an important role in being a godly example of masculinity, especially to children in the church who may not have such an example in their home. So to Christian parents, Paul makes the charge to not provoke your children to anger, to not provoke your children to anger. In a parallel passage from Colossians, Paul calls parents to not discourage their children. So here Paul urges Christian parents to avoid misusing their authority as a way of crushing their children, causing them to despair, provoking them to anger. You know, it's interesting as if you pay attention to history a little bit, there tends to be a pendulum shift of parenting philosophies that sometimes drastically swings from one generation to the next. When we have this tendency to overreact from the prior generation and the next generation, I'm sure we'll do the same. So for some of you, you might remember that your parents were stern, even authoritarian. They commanded your respect. They compelled your obedience with the rod of discipline. But many times, and we have to be candid about this, such parenting was sometimes overly authoritarian, capricious based on the parent's mood in any given moment. 
And often it was excessive in its use of corporal punishment. So the heavy hand of parental authority was often employed in ages past to control the actions of the child, not as a way of getting to the heart of the child. And such parenting can easily, easily provoke a child to anger. And the misuse of that authority can discourage them. And it could cause the child to grow inwardly embittered against the parent, even though they are outwardly compliant. But today, the pendulum has kind of swung the opposite direction, with many parents preferring to be peers to their children rather than parents to their children. Many dads and moms parent with this sort of laissez-faire permissiveness. But when temper tantrums are but a matter of self-expression and a parent's rebuke is withheld out of fear of damaging a child's self-esteem, then we have severely deviated from the biblical responsibility of Christian parents. Many parents have abdicated their call to being parents by refusing to exercise authority and have instead become wranglers of a toddler tyrant who rules the roost. So if Christian parenting is deficient today, I think it's deficient in large part due to the parent's lack of spine and will to require their child's obedience. But we can provoke our children to anger as Christian parents through all sorts of ways. Through, either through the excessive use of authority in a heavy-handed sort of way, or through the abdication of that authority or neglecting to use it as we are called to by God. So there's countless ways that we can use or misuse that authority to the detriment, to the frustration and discouragement of our children. So we can place unreasonable demands on our children and all that they do. So we can, for example, punish a two-year-old for failing to do the dishes properly right? That's, that's unreasonable demands in our exercise of authority. Now, if you're 18, you can do the dishes, but if you're two, maybe not, right? So, or we can have a critical fault-finding spirit with our children, can't we? We can crush them with our constant critique, never giving encouragement, commendation, praise, or we can simply become neglectful and ignore our children, can't we? being lost ourselves as parents in a digital world while our children are pleading for our attention to parent them. Or we can inconsistently apply our authority by failing to give our children clear expectations and boundaries where a parent might laugh at a child's rebelliousness, particularly when it's cute, and then punish them for it an hour later. That confuses, that provokes our children to anger. So we can provoke our children by exercising our authority in vengeance, can't we? seeking to pay back our children for the way they've hurt us or damaged our reputation or embarrassed us rather than actually being concerned about the rebelliousness of their heart. So parents, you have authority over your children. The Bible gives it to you. God gives it to you. Expect their obedience. Yes, but do not become authoritarian, crushing your children by provoking them to anger and discouraging them. Your parenting should not be inconsistent. It should not be spiteful should not be controlling. Show them love, show them gentleness, show them tenderness, even as you require from them respect, honor, and obedience. So instead of provoking our children to anger, what should parents do instead? Paul tells us to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The verb bring them up is the same verb found in Ephesians 5, 29, where Paul tells husbands to nourish their wives. 
So Christian parenting should be done in providing, nurturing, feeding sort of way. Children should be fondly cherished and valued by their parents. The Christian home should be a place of laughter, of sweetness, of affection, of warmth. Parents should not treat their children as slaves or as burdens, as inconveniences or annoyances. We have the joyous responsibility before God to nourish our children, to bring them up, to help them grow in wisdom and stature in the Lord. And it is to the parents, the parents, that Paul gives the charge to bring up the children. The discipleship and nurture of children are the parents' fundamental responsibility. Dads and moms can outsource, excuse me, dads and moms can't outsource the raising of their children. A Christian parent might choose to utilize a a daycare, a nanny, a school, a church, or grandparents to help them as they care for their children, but not at the expense of the parent's unique responsibility to raise their children. So outside of your relationship with Jesus, your family is your most important priority. It's tempting for us parents to let careers and hobbies trump that list of priorities, even above our children. Each Christian couple has to seek the Lord to discern how do we organize the household around these biblical priorities. But the priority of time with our children should always be in the back of our minds as we make such decisions. Do both parents need to work? Should one of us stay home? Should I look for a less demanding job with less pay so that I might have more time with the children? I can't answer any of those questions for you. And we should be cautious of legislating Christian faithfulness when it comes to a family's decisions. We can't impose a law that the scriptures doesn't provide. Each family has to seek the Lord in prayer, find wise counsel from other believers, and ultimately choose to act for the children's best interests. But Christian parents should desire, our impulse should be, I want to have as much time with the children as possible for their raising and for their discipleship. So if you decide that you need more time with your children, if you're going to fulfill this passage, if you're going to bring them up in the Lord, (laughs) and sometimes that may require a significant life change for a season. But the investment we make in our children is always an investment worth making. Pastor Brian Chappell said, bigger homes, nice cars, and longer vacations purchased at the price of absent parents cost far too much and may well indicate submission to values distant from Scripture. So may the Lord give us all wisdom and discernment, particularly those of us with children in the home, of how to put these biblical priorities into place in our own households and to prioritize the bringing up of the children. Harry Chapin's song, The Cat in the Cradle, has always been a song, even as a teenager, that kind of haunted me in a way. You're not familiar with the song. The song narrates a a lifetime of following a relationship between a father and son. And the father is busy. He's hectic in life. And over time, it leads to distance and estrangement between the father and the son. And at the very end of the song, you hear the testimony of a lamenting older father longing for a relationship with the son he never prioritized, only to see his son following in his same footsteps. 
parents, we only get to raise our children once. We only get to do it once. There are no do-overs when it comes to parenting. Don't sacrifice your children on the altar of convenience, of career, of family, of hobbies. Your life simply isn't about you. It's not about any of us. It's about serving others for the glory of Christ. And chief of those whom we are called to serve as parents is our children. Raising children is costly, but it's a worthwhile sacrifice for our children's good and for the glory of God. And it's unique. This is our God-given responsibility that we alone possess to bring up our children in the Lord's. Therefore, we ought to prioritize it. But Paul says that parents ought to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So by discipline, Paul refers to the sort of training and correction a parent must provide a child. <coughs> of course, this means that as parents, we do use corrective discipline for a child. But part of parenting is giving your child the experiences of doing something and then trying to provide feedback, corrective feedback. That's discipleship in a nutshell. In other words, model for your, Christian, for your child what to do, instruct them how to do it, and then allow your child to attempt it and then give feedback if they fail or struggle and help them and correct them. So parenting in this sort of lens is an 18-year mentorship that you have with your child as they watch you, observe you, imitate you, and hear feedback from you. By instruction, Paul refers to the sort of verbal teaching that parents must provide their children. Much could be said about the educational choices we make for our children here. And I will say but a few words. So we must, we must honor the Christian freedom for each family to make the best schooling choices for their children. Whether it's private school, public school, or home school, or whatever other school you want to do, online school, who knows what all the options are now. Neither one is a badge of Christian faithfulness. And each option presents unique challenges and temptations for our families that we have to overcome with the wisdom and help from God's word. So I'm grateful that we have families in redemption that come and employ all those different sorts of options I just mentioned. And what a blessing it is to help each other, to counsel each other, to encourage one another as we disciple our children. So no matter your schooling choice as a family, we do have to remember, though, that it is every parent's responsibility to oversee what the child is being taught and who is teaching them. And every parent is responsible for teaching their child the scriptures and sharing the gospel with them. Because we instruct, Paul says, of the Lord, of the Lord. The Lord is the content of our instruction. Jesus and his word are the aims of the content that we are catechizing, instructing our children. We may teach all sorts of skills to our children as parents. Indeed, you need to. You need to teach your child how to use a toilet. It's an important life skill, Right? You need to teach your child how to brush their teeth, how to do their laundry. You'd be amazed how many college students get to college and don't know how to run a load of laundry. Parents, do your job, right, for, for all the RAs and all these different universities. And you need to teach your kid how to drive a car, right? That's an important skill to be able to do as you grow. But if we're not instructing our children in the gospel, we are faithless. We are faithless and we have failed no matter what our child's test scores may say or what Ivy League school they get into. Cultivate times of family worship, parents, where you can read and study God's word together 
Memorize a catechism. Use the New City Catechism. Or, or memorize some memory verse. Read together good books that, that help you converse about the world and about the gospel. Engage your children in conversation. Entice them with questions to get their ideas and their thoughts. Uncover matters of the heart and help them to look to the Lord Jesus for help and forgiveness. And, and as a Christian parents, above all, Keep sowing continually, ongoingly, the seed of the gospel. Do the work of evangelism in your home every day and pray, pray, pray. The Lord might awaken the hearts of your sinful children just as he has awakened yours. The Christian home should be a sweet blessing to those who bring up a new generation in the Lord. The Christian home ought to be a spiritual nursery where our children's souls bloom into maturity and godliness by the power of the spirits. But we have to remind ourselves that while God normally uses Christian parents in a mighty way in their children's lives, it is God himself who ultimately is at work in the hearts of children. If you are a parent with a wayward child, you are not necessarily faithless. And if you didn't have a Christian home, praise God that he brought you the gospel and saved you even though you had unfaithful and lost parents. If the perfect parent existed, he or she is not in this room, even then they could not guarantee their child's conversion. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, says, sometimes those who are properly raised go astray. And sometimes those who are spiritually disadvantaged are models of Christian life and character. But these are exceptions. And the normal pattern is the communication of faith from generation to generation within the context of a genuinely Christian home. So while the Christian home is vital, it is the normative nursery for the conversion and spiritual growth of children. We have to recognize that we ultimately depend upon the Lord. And so while mom may plant and dad may water, it is God who must give the growth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we ask for your help, that you would help us to wisely care for the hearts of children. We pray specifically for parents that you would give them wisdom in the task. And Lord, above all, we pray that you might save those who are lost for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.